Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and this is episode 49. And this is the first episode of Rearview on Tour, which is brought to you in association with Mercedes-Benz Vans. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Cowland. Welcome to Rearview, Paul. I'd like to start off by asking, what is it exactly you do? It's a good question. I do get asked that a lot. When you go to a dinner party, people say, what is it that you do? It's quite hard to describe, really. I mess about with cars. I think that's probably the, <laughs> the best thing to say. And that takes many forms. So sometimes on television, sometimes in print, uh, sometimes on video. Uh, we have a garage. I do automotive PR. But it's just... And I collect them. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify, basically. So I, I mess about with cars, and certain people are kind enough to pay me to do that. Oh, well, that's yeah. good. It's good. It's good that you can do that. Yeah. It's a hard career to define, though. Really. <laughs> right, well, we'll explore all those little different facets um, further in, but I would, I would like to start off with going back, back in the myths of time to find out when you first got interested in cars. I think it was at birth. Okay, that's yeah, fair I think it was a genetic predisposition. <laughs> in my baby book, my mum kept a baby book for me, and in my first words page, it goes mum, car, dad, <laughs> which really upset my father. <laughs> so I think it must have been from really early on, and if you look at every baby picture of me, it's with Matchbox cars. Yeah. What's really funny, this is how ainly retentive I am and how OCD I am. Every Matchbox car I had as a kid is still pristine, I still have it. No chips, no kids like chip their cars together. Yeah. I used to like carefully park them and if I was going to play at my grands I'd wrap them in tissue paper and <laughs> chip each other but that was at the age of two or three which is kind of worrying isn't it really? uh, it could have been an indication of a certain yeah. certain direction your life was going in yeah. but uh, fortunately uh, it hasn't done you any harm hopefully not yeah. but I think all I've ever known is cars and so my dad's quite car obsessed we come from quite a car obsessed family and mm-hmm. I've grown up into that and my first job pretty much was a motor trade job and prior to that even as a kid you know, I bought my first car when I was 13 I went halves with a friend on a Mark One Escort van. He was a farmer's lad, and for 50 quid we bought this, frankly, quite battered yeah. Mark One Escort van. Probably with scene tax, it's probably worth 10 grand now. <laughs> and we just drove around the farm, and that was, it. And that was learning you know, what cars do, how they yeah. work, how to drive, and, and what you need to do to fix them and keep them going. Yeah. And it was a valuable lesson, really, and I think since then I've, I've always had a car since 13, really. So when you were in school, was the idea to do something with cars for a job, or was that many steps further down the line it's funny that was the dream but coming from quite a sensible family I mean in Nottingham where I'm from you either work for kind of Experian or Boots or John Player <laughs> they're the kind of three big employers <laughs> and I got some okay exam results so I got offered a quite decent management trainee position at Boots so it went for that and then I realised kind of four or five months in it just fantastic job amazing opportunity but it didn't involve cars in any way so I, I left <laughs> much to disappointment of family managers everything left Boots and went to work as a trainee salesman at Saab in 1994 mm-hmm. and that was it and I've just been motor trade ever since that's all I've ever done cool. bit of a one trick pony really <laughs> it weren't, you say that it's one industry mm. pony maybe not trick but it's <laughs> that's the thing I just love this industry I love car people I love cars I love kind of what you get up to working in the motor trade and you know the kind of situations you find yourself in and I don't think I could do anything else I've been very lucky I've worked for some lovely people in the motor trade when I was at mm. Saab you know, wonderful family business Great product as well, Saab, back in the day. And also very nice people who used to buy Saabs. Yes. You get a certain type of person that buys a Saab, and generally they're quite nice. Yes. <laughs> so it was a lovely job. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's not that kind of high turnover volume franchise where you've got to do loads of cars in a day. So you really got to spend time with the people who bought the, bought the cars, mm. and you really got to know them, and it was, it was lovely. It was a great way to start. Yeah, I presume you get repeat. Oh, tons of repeats. 
and because I was there for a long time as well, and everybody told their friends, and that was it. And the job just gets easier and nicer, and kind of more pleasant as you go along. Yeah, yeah, and a happy customer. And what was nice is the guy that owned the franchise. He was very much, you know, do a fair deal, do a nice deal. You're much better to kind of love somebody to death and have twenty referrals than make a quick profit today and never see them again. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great philosophy. I love that philosophy. And you know, quite now, brave. Yeah, but very clever, very, very yeah, clever. Because yeah. you know, I remember he was prepared to kind of lose money on deals to make a customer happy, knowing that they'd be back, and you can always get your money back if you, you know, make a small amount of money or even break even, but keep that customer delighted. You'll always yeah. make more money out of them. Yeah, and that was his philosophy to you know, keep them coming back. So when you first started out, what were the sort of things you were doing then? When I first started, Andrew, it was kind of quite lowly. So I was taken on to be like a marketing assistant, the little guy that sends out the the mail shots and the invites to the openings and that kind of stuff. But I very quickly gravitated to sales because I love talking to people. Mm. I love talking to people about cars. And these people would come in, all the salesmen would be busy. We didn't have that many. Yeah, You'd get chatting, you know, talk about the new Saab, talk about what was on it. You'd take them out for test drive while they were waiting for the salesman. By the time you've done all that, you've sold them a car. They were, they were pretty much there. <laughs> and my boss, Mick Wood, at the time just said, look, you're selling cars anyway, just become a salesman. And that was it. That was kind of the start of, of my love of selling cars, really. And it, it, from what you've said so far, it wasn't in the cliched uh, must drive the deal, must must be a very aggressive... Yeah, it, it, it was, the, didn't sound like it was that sort of atmosphere. No, it, it was, like the, it was, it was a, the exact antithesis of that, really. It was very much kind of cuddle them to death, love them to death. If they want to go home and think about it, that's fine. You know, Why wouldn't you? You know, yeah. £25,000, I want to go home and think about it. Great idea. It's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Come back to me tomorrow. And then you get almost reverse psychology. Cause fine. Take all the time you need. Call me back when you're ready. And they go, uh, no, no. <laughs> no. I'll do a deal now. <laughs> I demand. <laughs> only, if, only if you're ready. <laughs> yeah. So it's quite clever. I mean, he was a very clever guy. I mean, he taught me so many things about kind of customer service and car sales. I, think, I still think would be relevant today. Hmm. So Mick Wood had this amazing sales technique. So when somebody used to ring for a brochure... I would sit there, you know, writing out the envelope to put the brochure in to send it straight away so the person would get that brochure the next day. And he caught me doing it once and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm writing out the envelope to send the brochure to send to the guy that's asking Being all diligent. And- yeah. <laughs> he says, well, that's silly because you've got his address. He says, and if you've been very clever, you've got his work address as well. He says, why don't you get in the car and take it around? So that's a good idea. He says, then he's got the brochure straight away. Within half an hour of calling you, because of course you only tend to sell within a fairly small area. Yeah. They're never more than 20 minutes away. I said, why don't you take the car that he's asked yeah. about? <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. I said, well, that's a really good idea. So then all of a sudden, 20 minutes after the guy's rang you outside his work, in the car that he's called about, with the brochure that he's just requested, and of course you're very kind of hands-off and you say, look, I know you're very busy, here's your brochure. I was passing. Just passing, like that. exactly that, always just passing. <laughs> Call me if you see anything you like and I'll come back out again. And of course he's looking at you in the car outside. The, oh, is that the car? That's the car. That's the car you rang about. Well, I'll have a quick look. And more, you know, nine times out of ten, oh, I'll have a quick drive around the block. So you've gone from an inquiry to a test drive in 20 minutes. Yeah. Whereas every other car he's rang that afternoon, that brochure's not coming until tomorrow. Yeah. But that was a great example of the kind of guy he was. And I learned everything I learned about car sales from him. And he was just brilliant. You know, real old school gentleman, massive levels of integrity. So he would rather lose a £1,000 than lose his word or mm-hmm. lose his reputation. And I've, I've tried to run my old businesses that way. I just think it's a great way to work. No, it does, it does, sound, it does sound good, uh, really good. Um, and it's refreshing to hear someone who was on the other side of that. I mean, you do hear people giving examples of, of that. And sometimes, because we're Brit- British, um, we have uh, the cynical gene. Yeah, yeah. We perhaps don't believe everything that comes in on that. So, um, 
you know, when when you hear from the other side that that was no, no this is how we operate. It's, yeah, it, it is actually brilliant to hear that. Uh, so, when you were there, did you have any particular favourite Saabs? Always, always, always. So, it's a really funny story. So, I was obsessed with the Monte Carlo yellow convertible. That's what I wanted. And I was the junior salesman, and I'd been there two minutes. And, of course, there was many salesmen above me. <laughs> I'd been there a lot longer. So, I said to my boss, the big boss, I really would like to have as my demonstrator a Monte Carlo yellow convertible. And he said, look, you're at the back of the queue, sunshine. You, <laughs> you've just started this. Guys have been here ten years. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, we're all here to do a job. And I said to him, look, what can I do for you that would allow me to drive around in a Monte Carlo yellow convertible? And he just said, look, you know, how many cars are you selling a month now? And it was, I don't know, five or six or something as a junior salesman. He says, well, if you can do 12 a month for six months, you can have one. I thought, well, that sounds like a good deal. Off I'll go. Now, I didn't shake his hand. I didn't write it down. didn't do anything. And then literally for the next six months, cut a very long story short, I made sure I sold at least 12 cars a month. And I wrote them all down, every customer. Went to him, remember it like it was yesterday, Christmas Eve, I'd done the last car. The perfect time to yeah, anyway, request well, I, I, I started at the first I started on the first of July. We got to Christmas Eve and I'd done this this twelfth car of the six months and I thought, Yeah, I've done it, I've done it, I can't believe it, I've done what he said to do. Then walk into his office thinking, I'm gonna have this conversation with him. I thought, we never wrote this down, we never agreed this, we never even shook hands on it. And I sat there with him and I said, Do you remember that conversation we had in June? Well, you said if I did 12 cards a month for six months, I could have a convertible. He went, not really, no. It's like, oh, you did, you did. And I, and you said if I did it, I could have a, a Monte Carlo yellow convertible. Went, oh, yeah, I, I kind of vaguely remember some conversation. I said, look, there's the cars. I, I sold all the cars. He went, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. No, we did have that conversation. He's like, wait there, wait there. So he just went down. There was a used car in stock, used convertible in stock. And he just went, there you go. Take that one for Christmas, order your car tomorrow. I just <laughs> yes and that was it and I just had a succession of yellow convertibles anyone that knows me will remember in the 90s when Saab bought out the yellow convertible that's all I drove basically <laughs> and, I, and I used to spam them up and put wheels on and lower them and do all sorts of crazy things and yes yeah, so I was what 21, 22 driving around in a Saab convertible and I was I couldn't have been happier <laughs> even even in the winter you used to have the roof down looked a right idiot <laughs> Well, no, you've got it. We're in Britain. Yeah, yeah if it's, it's not raining, the roof has to be well, down. Yeah, I think so. But also, why have a convertible and not have the roof down if it's not raining? That was always my justification, right, even yeah. though I looked ridiculous. You have to do that. Yeah. You have to do that. So how long were you at uh, at the dealer then? Oh, quite a while, about six, seven years. And then also, so it started as a Saab dealership, and then we acquired Subaru, which is kind of the other car love of my life. Mm-hmm. And then all that the was S's. Kind of, yeah, all the S's, <laughs> it's true. And that was kind of at the height of the Colin McRae era, so yeah. kind of 97, 98. 99 when Subaru really were doing amazing things in world rallying had the best drivers were on import restrictions so you could only get so many cars as a dealer yeah you know and, and really an amazing time to be a Subaru salesman it was you know you were order taking you weren't selling cars really everybody wanted one you know you had two you didn't have to push hard no you had two customers well three customers for every car that you had mm. and yeah great times great times and most of those cars are still be on the road today quite a few of them according are. to Subaru's own stats it's yeah. something ridiculous like 98% of the cars are still on the road from 10, 15 years well, I can ago. believe that, apart from the many impressors that probably got put in the hedge. Yeah, there's a few of those. Yeah. Or, or mysteriously broke down outside of a track day. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I was <laughs> just passing. Although it takes a real lack of skill to put an impressor in the hedge, because if you keep your foot in it, it will just go pretty much wherever you want it to. I mean, that was the thing. Coming from Saab, which was a great performance car, of course, Saab were always kind of at the front of turbocharging. Mm. Really quick, very wonderful performance car but quite heavy. Yeah. And obviously, to be fair, not the greatest chassis, but then you get into the Subaru, you know, I think then 218 horsepower, no weight, symmetrical all-wheel drive. 
I mean, that thing felt like the Millennium Falcon when you first tried. <laughs> I mean, it's so slow now. You know, people are moaning now about the BRZ, which has 200. It wasn't yeah. that long ago. 218 was like the world, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I don't understand that so much because there's so many cars today that have such massive amounts of power that we never touch most of it. No. I mean, it, I'm all for having uh, the ability that, you know, you've got that, you've got some stopgap that if there's a problem and you need the power to get you out of an issue or something like that, it should be there. Yeah. But from everyday driving, you know, you look at some of these one. I mean, forget the ridiculous thousand horsepower stuff. No, that's just crazy fantasy land. But just regular cars, you just think you never touch more than 30% of that. You really don't. I mean, what's interesting, I actually have a BRZ. I like that car. We work with Subaru now, and mm. I like that car so much through the development of the car. We help them with the accessories range. I bought the car. I bought the car that we developed the accessories range on. <laughs> because, I mean, exactly what you say, that to me is the perfect car. So it's 200 horsepower, rear-wheel drive, beautiful balance, very delicate car that you can drive pretty much flat out. You can drive that car at the limit of its performance, even with moderate talent. Well, I think that's why these uh, uh, small, well, the super, the, the super mini uh, hot hatches. Yeah. And the well, yesterday, I think, the up up GTI. GTI that that looks seemed, 13 in a bit grand, though. It's got tons of positive yeah. press on uh, Twitter everybody going this is fantastic yeah. and I think a lot of that was because you drive it flat out all the time yeah there, there is no you're either stopped or flat out to get everything out to ring you ring its neck and that reminds people what fun driving can be I think so one of my favourite cars to take home we have a little Honda Civic 99 Honda Civic 1.4 it's an old lady car and we have it as like a loan car it's like 30,000 miles so it feels really tight mm. but of course it's got no power at all but it's just lovely. It's lovely to drive, and you can drive that car literally on the rev limiter all the way home. And I live down this amazing country lane, and that's the car I often take home in the winter because you can just drive it literally on the stops. You know, it's literally on the stops of the shock absorbers, on the steering <laughs> stops, on the accelerator stop. You just drive it on the stops, and you're doing 55. Yeah. But it feels like you're doing 155, and it's that. That to me, that's the pure fun of driving. Just doesn't matter what you're in. Just drive it as fast as it will go. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do then after after Saab? After Saab, I went to run oh, the family super, business. Oh, yeah, yeah. so that was early notice. Then I went to then run uh, the family business, which at the time was a relatively small Saab specialist, mm -hmm. and then pretty much helped to turn it into one of the largest Subaru specialists. So we had a company called TSL Motorsport, which okay. people into Subarus might remember. And we were kind of very much kind of pushing... At the time, that was the big tuning explosion, wasn't it? Early noughties. Yeah. You know, magazines like Max Power and Japanese Performance and Banzai were kind of at the height of their powers. And you know, the amount of things you could buy for those cars was just extraordinary. And, you know, and we had a fairly substantial business doing you know, five, six thousand pounds of mail order every day. Mm. Had you know, five, six ramps just absolutely flat chat all the time. So do you wield a spanner yourself? Are you Badly, badly. to be very badly. Okay. I tend to surround myself with much more talented people who are far more competent. You're than the me. ideas man. Yeah, yeah. A, a big picture stuff, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad yeah. you've recognised that, yeah. I can't, don't get me wrong, if, Blue you know, sky thinking, yeah. out of the boxes. And all, things all like that. that. Yeah, lingo bingo from <laughs> management meetings. No, I mean, I can, you know, the basics I can do, like yeah. kind of basic servicing, but, you know, because there's so many people around me that are so much better than me, I, I tend to delegate. <laughs> yeah. Wise. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're running the family business, you've, um, you've taken it from uh, a sales specialist to now doing uh, outrageous things. To with Subarus, Subarus. Including, I modified a 22B, which, of course, is the car that you should never modify, and I know that, and I knew that then. I thought, how do I get loads of attention with this business? And I thought, you know, 22B, that's the, that's the Mona Lisa, isn't it? You know, why don't I paint a moustache on the Mona Lisa and let's see what happens. So we've got this 22B, which, of course, is the homologation car. 
they made 400 and odd you know really beautiful thing they're worth a hundred thousand pounds now and we took the bonnet the boot the bumpers and everything off it and they had carbon fiber versions made and this was before you could buy off the shelf carbon fiber bonnets and things like that that kind of predated that <laughs> you know we put graphics on because this was the height of the fast and the furious era of course 2001 yeah. and um did all this stuff all the magazines ran it as cover you know it went global just as the internet was really starting to be something and of course everybody was either thinking it was the most brilliant thing they'd ever seen or the worst abomination of car customization. How would you dare do that? Definitely so, Marmite. <laughs> and that was, of course, that's the point, isn't it? If you're yeah. doing anything in press, make it either love or hate. Because well, if, if, you, if you get a uh, then you've not made a reaction. You've, you've at least got a reaction to it. You've done something. You've done something special if you've got a reaction. Yeah. Um, so yeah, oh. and that was the thing you see and all the time that this was out there of course our website was almost melting <laughs> and then there's, a, there's the NASIOC which is the North American Subaru Impressor Owners Club forum which is quite a big traffic forum or certainly was back in the day I think it was on a page 18 or 19 of the thread about how terrible this car was at this point our server had crashed about five times <laughs> with web traffic and some American guy goes guys I think I've just worked out what they're trying to do because at this point, of course, I'd taken everything off the car, very carefully put all the original panels <laughs> back on, and then was just driving it around as a, as a standard car. But that's the thing about you know wings and bonnets and boots, they just yeah. unbolt. Yeah. You know, yeah. lights and bolts. So I'd put morettes on, which was a thing back in the day. and you know, just Basically, I'd put the catalogue on this car, <laughs> ran it around for three, four months, had every magazine feature, and just put it all back to standard. Yeah. But nobody really understood. It was just a, an exercise in kind of shock and awe that people either thought was brilliant or terrible got so much business out of it and that basically then led to the next thing because when I was building these show cars and magazine cars a lot of the brands we were working with were saying oh that was quite good you know you got some good coverage there and you should do PR you should you know, go into automotive PR and you could maybe represent our brand and then a few brands like Toyo and Ibac at the beginning in 2004 said you know if you ever started a PR agency we'd, we'd work with you and that's how the next kind of chapter of my life came about. So I started that in 2004, and that's, that's still going today. What other cars did you do? So you've got the, the 22, that you've, uh, which was a fantastic marketing, which I presume you sold that for a profit. Yeah, I did. At the time, I think I paid 22 appropriately enough for it, and I think I got 26 or 27 for it kind of eight months later. So that was a great car. Did a considering what the business it brought in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but now, I mean, you can't find a nice one, really, for kind of under six figures. So one of those cars, if I could have afforded to keep it at the time, I really wish I had. Yeah. And I think that car in particular, more than any others, led to my car hoarding obsession now. <laughs> because you, you, you can see what's coming. You can, you can see the cars that you know are going to make the money. Yeah. You think, if I can just hold on to it, you know, I can enjoy the car in the meantime. And if I ever need to cash out, it's, gonna, it's better than any investment, isn't it, really? Yeah. A decent yeah. car. So my wife is very understanding. Thank you, Emma. Um, <laughs> so I now have a huge car collection. And some of them aren't flash or you know, particularly expensive. But I just tend to buy the things I really like. Yeah. And even then, so when I had the 22 Bale, I also had at the same time a Hilux monster truck and an Allegro Vanden Pla, or Plas, depending on which one you think it should be pronounced. So I like really eclectic, weird stuff. It doesn't have to be flash or expensive or heroic. It just needs to be, I like it. And yeah. more importantly, no one else has got one. It's interesting to you. Yeah. I, I love stuff that's unusual. So I bought a Subaru Leone the other day off eBay for 1,200 quid, rust-free, which is an achievement in itself from a really nice guy in Cornwall. Um, again, when did you see a Subaru Leone? You never see him, do you? No. And I bought an XT from America, £3,000. Not an expensive car, but a rust-free Subaru XT, which is kind of the height of their origami design era. Yeah. You never see them. No. So that, that, they're the perfect cars to me, you know, 1,200 quid, two grand, three grand. 
that no one else has got. That's the world's best car. A proper nerd. Yeah. About. <laughs> <laughs> proper nerd proper car. car nerd. Yeah. yeah. Uh, You're going over into automotive PR. Um, what were the sort of projects that you got involved with there? Well, it's really interesting. When I first that started... you can speak about. <laughs> yeah. The ones that my solicitor's allowing me to talk about today. Uh, well, funny enough, Terry Grant, if you've ever heard of him, there's yeah. a stunt driver called Terry Grant. And when I knew Terry before I started the agency because uh, he was working for Toyo at the time and we sold a lot of Toyo. And we kept meeting each other. So when I first started the agency, we did a lot together with Terry Grant. And he was getting a lot of world records at the time. So I produced an awful lot of world records for Terry. So I helped him to think oh, of the okay. idea, you know, create the environment for him to do them or yeah. get to an event where he could do it. Then the A's with Guinness uh, to actually get that written up. Mm-hmm. So that's when Terry really started. I mean, since then, he's done an awful lot himself. Yeah. And I think he's got 17 or 18. He's got his whole page. He's the chap that did the two-wheel up Goodwood Hill. That's right, yeah. 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 Very talented guy. Uh, you know, brilliant driver. We had about two, Tracking three... Tracking centre balance. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> really, really clever guy. You know, awesome car control. Yeah. So kind of used to help Terry get sponsorship and manage him, and we did some events together, like MPH, if you remember that, mm-hmm. which was the precursor of Top Gear Live. Yeah. Then through working with Terry, I met Andy Saunders, the car customiser. Did a few things with Andy, did a TV pilot. And then interestingly, what happened then whilst I was doing that, I also met a TV producer called Paul Mazzal, who was doing a lot of automotive telly, and that's how I fell into automotive television. Because he was doing various shows for motors and Eurosport and people like that mm. and I got to consult on some of those and my client at the time was Santapod the raceway and we managed to put this deal together where we did a TV show for motors and Eurosport for Santapod and I was All effectively right. there just to advise you know show them where the toilets were and exciting things like that and it worked out as I was explaining stuff to the cameramen those links ended up getting used in the show all right, cool. And then somebody at Motors and Eurosport saw it and went, yeah, that's okay, he's all right. Yeah, just let him talk about some other stuff. And that's how it all kicked off. That's how television so, started. So what? Because um, that's a question I wanted to, to know. When someone says that they, or you see it in the titles, consulted yeah. on a show, what does that typically mean? It, well, it can mean anything, really. I mean, in that instance, all I was there to do was act as a facilitator between the venue and the production company mm-hmm. and kind of work out what was best for the client who was trying to make their venue and their show seem. And obviously having some idea of what the production company needs to make an easy job. So that's that's one thing. It's kind of like a consultant producer sort of role. But it can be anything. I mean, there's a lot of people who are making quite a good living in automotive acting as the conduit between the car people and the production yeah. companies. Because, you know, having worked in car television for quite a while now, it's quite easy to see there's some very brilliant creative people in television that don't necessarily understand how the motor trade works hmm. and vice versa. So you sometimes need that filter both ways in the middle to help. Yeah, like translator. Those. Exactly that, yeah. 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 No. Okay. No. Sorry. It was just, that's just something I've I've seen it, and sometimes I can see uh, that's somebody that's obviously been doing a lot of work, but didn't want to be on the telly. Mm. Um, I think it was the Wheeler Dealers who was, who was the silent. Was it silent? Paul. Paul the mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. He's very good. Paul Brackley. Yeah. He's... Yeah. Because yeah, you see on some of the shows that he's down as a consultant, you think, ah, oh, he just didn't want to talk to camera. Yeah. But I know he's been helping Ed and. Well, that's it. When, when Ed first started, uh, you know, Paul was doing a lot more of the spanner work, and then as Ed grew in his skill, obviously he did more and more. Mm. But it's interesting, when we did our last TV show, actually, so we did a show called Turbo Pickers about three years ago, and my co-presenter on that was a guy called Dave Southall, brilliant guy, but had never had owned a car even. All right. presenting a car show. <laughs> Through no fault of his own, he was basically cast to do something else completely different, like a mad professor show. <laughs> then he got moved across to our car show, because yeah. he was very good on camera. But bless him, through no fault of his own, he found himself in a position where they were saying, right, fix this car. He's like, well, I don't really do that. He builds custom motorbikes. 
<laughs> so they came to me, who was the other presenter, and said, have you got any ideas what we could do? I said, yeah, don't worry. To my friend Adam, who I now run a garage with, uh, he's brilliant. We've known each other 15 years, probably built 30 cars together. Um, I said, look, get Adam on. He can do off-camera, like Paul Brackley. So Dave can go, I'm now fixing this. We can yell cut. Adam can put it all together. Cut the shots of Dave spannering the final three bolts in. Job done. <laughs> Television magic. Yeah. Yes. No one need ever know. And um, so first day of filming, Adam's on the set, and of course we've known each other a long time, we're messing about, telling jokes and stuff. And they just started filming it, and you know, again, cut a long story short, Adam just ended up as the third presenter, basically, because they liked the dynamic so much. Yeah. You know, two genuine friends, which is in television, what you always try and get is two real mates, or three real mates is even better, uh, you know, just messing about. Yeah. If you can then do that within the construct of whatever it is you're trying to do, that's generally a good TV show. Yeah. Yeah. You were doing uh, stuff for Motors and uh, Eurosport, and you before we started recording, you said there were magazine-type stuff. Yeah. What was the typical sort of thing that you were... Uh, to presume then you mean it's lots of little items. Exactly that, yeah. Together. So we do a lot of um, content for magazines. So I write both as an independent kind of freelance journalist and also obviously we do sort of tech features. So we now have to write... Uh, so we've got marketing, PR, writing, TV... Yeah. Uh, sales. Uh, <laughs> see, this is why I had to ask you. What it is difficult, yeah. <laughs> and also occasionally, I mean, I wouldn't class myself as a photographer because I know some very good photographers. I class myself as a photo taker, <laughs> which is not the same thing. <laughs> so occasionally for certain features, I will do the photos as well. Mm-hmm. But as I said, I don't class myself as a photographer because that is a, it's a different level of skill. They are. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we do have photographers that we work with now and yeah, I, I can't do that. <laughs> There's a lot involved. Sorry, I interrupted there, but um, so you've got these little items that you're putting together. Um, yeah, so features. Half an hour show was it? Or yeah, well, I think it was a it was an hour on motors, I think, in half an hour on Eurosport, and it was just really good fun. And what was lovely is the guys in the production company became really good friends. It was quite a young production crew, mm-hmm. and it was at Santa Pod, and it was normally a three or four day event. So we'd get there on the Thursday night in our Volkswagen camper vans, park up for the weekend. You haven't got to drive till Sunday afternoon, so you think, well, let's have a beer. Because then you go, like, well, we'll have a beer, then we'll go and do some filming. Like three beers later, you go, oh, let's go and do some filming now. So, of course, <laughs> you spend the whole weekend basically drinking up till Sunday, obviously, because you're driving home. And you're thinking, and all the time you're making this television, you're basically drunk. <laughs> so if you watch my old, my old show reel, it's still on YouTube. I know, it was, it was amazing. It was just brilliant. Yeah. It was all wonderful. So, as long, yeah, as long as you kind of stopped at the point before you started to slur, then, but generally, of course, because you're then quite relaxed. Yeah. So if you watch some of my early stuff, which is, I think, on YouTube still and on Vimeo and things like that, I mean, it does feel like we're just messing about because basically we were. And I think because of that, that kind of developed my presenting style, which was just effectively messing about and it hasn't really got any better, even though now contractually I have to present sober. <laughs> yes, legally. Yeah, legally. You do you sign a thing when you start on the production. Discovery says, obviously, you must turn up for work sober and correct and all that kind of stuff. Because cause we're driving. This is why I don't work for people. I know. <laughs> because we're driving cars and things. Yeah. Yeah. Solicitors and legal people say you can't drive you know, when you had a drink. It's, yeah. You can't do that on television. Shocking. Yeah. yeah. Nanny state. I know. <laughs> Health and safety gone mad. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you did the turbo pickers. Was. That, I vaguely remember seeing that. Um, you were one of the three people that watched it. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> That's Appreciate okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was one series. It was one series. One and, series, and that seemed a bit of a blueprint for your latest 
show. Well, I think they're all quite derivative, aren't they? Because people say, what's new about your new TV show? So it's groundbreaking stuff. You know, we go out and we find cars and we do them up and we sell them. And it's literally never been done on television before. (laughs) It's totally new. And to be fair, all all of these shows, we're all kind of doing a very similar thing, aren't we, really? So Mm. We The Dealers, Goblin Works Garage, our new show, Savage Hunters Classic Cars, our old show, Turbo Pickers, you know, Rags to, uh, Rex to Riches. It's, it's fairly derivative formats and it's just kind of little style differences in between. Yeah, it's the people, isn't it? That's, it is, That's yeah. what makes the difference. It's the dynamics, it's the people, it's the... But I'd say that it's the... the not the style of the show, but the vibe of the show. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's where you stamp your own kind of identity, isn't it? Because if you kind of boil it down, the formats are roughly similar. And as you say, what, what you do is then either the style of presenting or the way it's filmed or kind of the way the jobs are presented. That's how you give each show its own identity. And I think that's what they've done. But Toby Pickers was a really good, fun show to do. And what I loved about that show is because it was very kind of small budget, we had to do very realistic cars. So we were mm, buying, you know, yeah. a grand or grand and a half or two grand cars, which, as I say, is, is my favourite price point. My favourite price point is 1,500 quid. <laughs> we well, can still get some amazing cars for 1,500 quid. You've got to work for it. Yeah. And then when you find them, it's a, yes. well, that's the thing, it's a yes moment. But that's it? it. It's much more of an achievement, isn't it, to get a really amazing car for 1,500 quid. And you can do it. You can yeah. buy stunning cars for 1,500 quid still. My friend Chris Pollitt runs a great website called Not Too Grand. Yes. Uh, and I love that site because to me that's exactly right. Under two thousand pounds is just—it's the sweet spot, isn't it? Well, I've got uh, a Saab nine three two liter, um, two thousand and one. So the the old shape, uh, low pressure turbo, and that was—it was almost a fluke yeah. that I got it. Fifty three thousand miles. Same lady had had it. Yeah. Had gone to the same garage for an MOT because he looked through the list and there it is. Every December, unfortunately it was December though, uh, every December, and it's done like 3,000 miles each year. And Amazing. Sort of go, and well, there's a little bit of bubble on the rear arch, and just, it was 1,600 quid. Yeah. And it was seven miles, you know, and I, was, I had a 50-mile radius on my search term, and it yes. was seven miles away, and it was like... Do you do it on eBay? Do you do that? I always do nearest first, if I'm buying yeah. cheap cars. yeah. yeah. Because you don't want to drive, although I did actually go to Cornwall, like deepest, darkest Cornwall, pretty much Land's End, to get that Leon. But I thought it's a Leon, isn't it? Yeah. You never see him? No. So I didn't mind that. And Rust Free from Cornwall, that's good. I know, work. that's why that's, that's the thing. But what I don't get is I bought that from Cornwall, pretty much by the sea, Rust Free, and I bought the XT from Washington, not known to be the dry state. No. <laughs> Rust Free. I mean, it looks like a California car, but it's Washington paperwork, Washington license, everything. So I don't understand how that car's lived in Washington and. And has maybe they had a heated garage. They must have done. Or not, not used it in the winter? Uh, maybe. Well, yeah. yeah. I suppose it, yeah, Washington would get a bit white. Yeah, but every, everything I tend to buy from America, normally from California or Arizona or Nevada, those kind of states yeah. tend to obviously give you the best cars. You get sun damage, but you get no bodywork. You know, upholstery is easy, isn't it? Yeah, you just replace a dash, don't you, that's yeah. split or something. He says, <laughs> having uh, extensively watched television programmes <laughs> of people fixing up cars... <laughs> So, with the new show, and this was um, purely by uh, accident that I am here the week that your new show well, comes you. out. It's almost like we planned it, is not it? <laughs> no, I, I, I couldn't try and make out that that's what was happening at all. Anyone who's listened to me before listeners. knows that we, this is we haven't a planned this. fluke. It's not part of Discovery's awesome marketing machine, is it, that we're having this conversation? No, but I really enjoyed the first episode, and I'm not just saying that because you're you. there, because I'm British and I, you know, I hate to give compliments to anyone. But no, I really enjoyed the show. I really enjoyed that it was quite relaxed. This is what I was saying before about the vibe. I felt it was a very relaxed, not as in horizontal, but we're just going to approach this as 
grown-ups and we're going to do this in an adult way and, we, and it's not all about spanners flying everywhere people getting cross because there's there's other shows that do that yeah you know, we've got 15 seconds to build this car go <laughs> and all that that goes on which is entertaining as well um but it that wasn't to me that wasn't the purpose of this show this show was to show uh cars are still available some of them are more expensive than others but they're still available if you do your homework, if you work hard. But the the one thing that really hit me was you're showcasing all the fantastic little businesses that are out there that are all part of the motor world. Yeah. That people wouldn't realise or just forget. Well, that's it. And uh, it was fantastic to hear Midlands voices. Yeah, well, well so <laughs> West Midlands, because of Coventry, of course. I mean, Coventry really is, you know, it's our Detroit, isn't it, really? Yeah. Coventry. Uh, so around the West Midlands, there are so many wonderful businesses. We're in Nottingham, the East Midlands, and mm. we've got a lot here. But you, you go west, and it's literally, it's a goldmine of amazing talent. And it's lovely that you've picked that up, because when Drew and I sat down with the production company, I mean, it's great, because you know, all producers want jeopardy, and they want disagreement, and they want you know, timeline, because as you say, on certain shows, it makes a great show. But we were quite convinced, A, because Salvage Hunters has never been like that. Mm. If you watch the Antiques version... It's 99% just Drew being followed around, doing what he genuinely does with a cameraman and a, a soundman. So they wanted to keep that vibe. They wanted to keep the fact that if it feels forced or scripted or constructed, I think all of that viewer kind of group wouldn't like it. Yeah. You know, when you watch Savage Hunters, you expect it to be as close to real life as it possibly can be. So we really tried to work within that constraint. The other thing was, exactly as you say, you know, we've got some very talented people here at Landspeed, our garage, where the show's yeah. filmed and where the cars are built, but... You know, you can't be brilliant at everything. You can't be as good at chroming, you know, as the guys in Birmingham that do the chroming because yeah. they're doing cars for Pebble Beach. That car that was mentioned in the show won yeah. Pebble Beach. Oh, it did, did it? It won Pebble Beach. Yeah. <laughs> so it's safe to say the chrome is quite good. That <laughs> they do that. You know, same as like the guys at Bromsgrove Auto Trim where we had the golf seats done. You know, we that can... was phenomenal. I mean, that was a particular point that you you went in with a particular idea. Sorry, I'm cutting you off here. That's all right. Because um, um, I'm rude. Uh, but you went in with a, a view that. Oh, it's not really necessary, and and if that's why it felt very real and very realistic, is because you go, I don't think it's necessary, but oh, come on, let's go and do it. Let's talk to them. You get there, and then you just went, okay, you said it would. I'm here. It is. Thank you. I'm glad I listened to the experts yeah. <laughs> from a country that doesn't like to listen to experts anymore. It's refreshing I know, I think, to hear that. <laughs> I actually, I think I admitted on camera I was wrong. In yeah, that scene, and so many people texted me. So it's the first time I've heard you say that. <laughs> but some people paused it and sent it's me a just screen television. <laughs> So it is actually artificially constructed drama. I, was, I wasn't wrong at all. Well, talking of the drama, I laughed out loud at the up to the first break, six thousand pounds, and then there's this camera, people mm, looking like this, looking the other way, a strokey chin moment, yeah. advert, come back, yeah, no problem, that's great. The right Show price, your hand done, the right price, and it? off, and not 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 the false haggling no. that you see in a lot of other shows. No, I've got to get them down because you know we just have to get them down. Type well, thing. I, I, again, it doesn't work. I, mean, I don't know if you watch much original Salvage Hunters, but Drew's the same. Drew is very good at paying whatever something's worth, whether that's up or down from where the, the person wanted it to be. You know, something has a value, and a nice level Mark One sixteen hundred Golf GTI that you know, needs a few things doing is six pounds worth. And, you know, Wayne, who I've known a long time, I've sold Wayne a lot of cars. Mm. So we've known each other 20 years, Wayne, he was in that clip. 
and he runs a really amazing business doing filming vehicles. I was looking at the background. There's oh, so, so much cool stuff. things in the background. What's cool stuff, I mean, Wayne's worked on all the British film productions. He does a lot of stuff with Shane Meadows mm-hmm. and all his productions and, you know, things like Peak Practice back in the day yeah, yeah. and all those ITV dramas. He does all the cars for those. And what's cool is cars I've sold him 20 years ago, he's still got and he's still using in productions. <laughs> because they never really date. There's always a need for period cars. Yeah. And that's how Wayne makes his money. But, you know, we've always been fair with each other. We always tra- charge each other the correct amount of money for a car. And the price we tend to give each other is sensible. Yeah. So if I say it's you know it's two grand for this, he'll pay two grand because I'm not taking the Mickey. And so when he says it's six grand for a six grand car, but it, that ties back to your first job. Yeah. And that ethos, and and that's you've you've carried that through. Yeah. Well, I think you know there's no point haggling for the sake of haggling. If something's yeah. the price it should be, just buy it because there's going to be times you know particularly if you've got a long term relationship, there's going to be times you win, times he wins. Yeah. But overall you're both doing all right because you it's fair. Yeah, and that's the one thing I learned you know, very early on in my car career. If you haggle for the sake of haggling, it's an easy way to upset a relationship. If something's the right price, just buy it. Mm-hmm. So um, how many more episodes have we, we got? Only two more. So they've decided to do two cars per episode, but just two, three episodes to kind of really pack in the cars in a short okay. space of time rather than kind of stretch out six episodes. Right. Because this is kind of an extended pilot, really, because Drew's schedule's so crazily busy... And they really wanted to do a car show with Drew, and Drew very kindly asked me along to do it with him. But they weren't sure, even you know, because he's got so much going on with Salvage, he's got a new restoration show coming out for furniture. You know, has he got the time to do a car show? Well, let's just see if it works. Mm. So all this is really, these three shows are like one huge extended pilot. Okay. It's taking a year to film. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully people watch it. Judging by um, Wednesday's viewing figures, uh, they do love it. So we've, we've got kind of a really, really, um, you know, we're delighted with the viewing figures from Wednesday. So if that continues then I think there will be a second series. People watch it. Please watch it. Please watch it. Gets it gets better. No, well, uh, <laughs> it's, at the minute, we're really, really lucky with the number of TV shows it's unbelievable, about cars. So many good things. That are accessible to everybody because uh, it's on uh, Quest, yeah. isn't it? Which is... Channel uh, 37 on your Freeview. Uh, on Freeview. 144 well on your Virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get that in. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. See, you've been at it. Just this marketing. Oh, it's, it's always there. It's there. It's Underlying, Andrew. It never goes away. Can't can't put it away. But there's us. Uh, there's Goblin Works, which is great, if people have watched that. I've got that recorded. I haven't seen the first one yet. Uh, it's well worth a watch. The week before. Definitely. Yeah. And that's that's really nice. Really kind of fresh thinking. Like you say, we're spoiled at the moment because we've got those guys doing like a British gas monkey garage, but with a much more... British flavour, yeah. no whooping and punching the air, that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, they have a cup of tea when they're finished. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> Even though it does have my friend Anton, who's a Canadian, but, you know, we'll forgive that. <laughs> he was born in Britain, he's got a British passport. Oh, that's OK, then. And then, of course, there's a the new Wheeler Dealers, which I don't yes. know if you've seen that yet. I uh, think I've seen I've... the first one, uh, and I was, I was really disappointed with social media and yeah. the way that they reacted. They wouldn't reacted. give it a chance, would they? they, they the way they reacted... To the whole news of Ed saying, "Look, it's time for me to move on. I've done this for a long time. Yeah, I just, I just want to do something else, which is crazy. People, people things... are allowed to do that, aren't they? <laughs> Especially that many series in. It's no, fair enough. Change is bad. Change yeah. is bad. So, uh, and then suddenly going from that to thinking it's all Mike's fault. Yeah, and then you know the the abuse he gets. I know. I, th- I think Mike Brewer deserves some kind of knighthood because thing is he is." A phenomenally successful broadcaster. He's not just done Wheeler Dealers, don't forget. He's done a yeah. load of other stuff as well. He's very good. I mean, he's the best raconteur when we do sort of classic car show live. He is, you know, a real convivial host. Got so many stories, so many jokes. And I think he's one of the most professional car presenters on the telly. And things you don't get to do that many series if you're not no. good at what you do. No. 
And that's the thing. And like you say, you know, he got the blame for Ed leaving and Ed chose to leave, not Mike. Then, of course, they signed Adam, which I thought was a masterstroke. Yeah. Because I think, you know, he's very good on television anyway. And also yeah. he brings something completely new to it. Yeah. Again, and people were slating a show they'd never even seen. Yeah. So this, this thing isn't even out in America. I know. And we've already decided it's rubbish. Well done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then what was hilarious... <laughs> that was hilarious. Is, I mean, I actually did a tweet on the 2nd of January, the day after the show came out. Um, because, of course, suddenly on 2nd of January, everyone had seen the show. Nothing. Mm. Everyone went really quiet, didn't they? Because it was really good. I just did this tweet with a piece of tumbleweed saying, you know, today's wheeler dealer keyboard warriors. It's just... <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Nothing at all. Everybody went quiet because the show was awesome. Yeah. And but I think it's moved on. I think it's gone up a step. And I think, you know, the, the things that they're bringing into it, I think the choice of cars is inspired. But also, you've got people like that first episode, they've got Frank Stephenson, yeah. in, the designer of the Escort Cosworth, you know, going back to the original design, putting the third wing back in. Yeah. You know, that's, a, that's and, another and level. It's giving us history as well as the, the mechanical side of things. So I thought, I loved his explanation of the turbo. Yeah. That was just a great way that he did it, and then you saw that he was—you t- didn't see every minute detail, but you saw, that's I think what people really like about Wheeler Dealers as well—is you get to see the oily bits being taken apart and yeah. being explained to you. Well, there's a thing in television they always bang on about when you're in these production meetings. It's called take home. They want every show to have take homes. So in other words, when you finish watching the show, you take home a piece of information you didn't have before you started, mm-hmm. and that's what's brilliant about that show—you take home stuff, you learn. Now you find out facts. What was making me howl after the show went out? Because obviously Frank Stephenson designed the Ford Cosworth, put the third wing in, they kind of rediscovered that and brought it back. And people who hadn't watched the show and were just seeing that... These are people on Ford forums and Ford pages going, that car looks terrible with the third wing. <laughs> they've ruined it. And they like, actually haven't. What they've done there is actually return it to the original design from the guy that designed the car. Yeah, it was the accountants who ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought at least, you know, if you're meant to be this ardent Ford fan that you say you are, you should know that. Yeah. And if you don't know that, don't comment. No, there's so many tribal tribes out there. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I found this because kind of you see, don't you, in a sort of forums, you know, all the shows that are out now, and I find particularly certain forums like Pissing Heads, I think people that go on certain forums are just angry about car television in general. But the problem with TV as a construct is you will never make the show that real car geeks like us want to watch because that show really needs to be on YouTube. If you do a show where, you know, you spend 15 minutes analysing thrush washers and, you know, tell the best disassembly procedure for a 1972 Volkswagen gearbox, there's an element of guys like us that go, this is fabulous television. This is the best thing I've ever seen. But But there is probably two of us watching it. Why does it not have that? You know, why has it not got this level of information? This is, you know, you're glossing over all the important stuff. And the problem is when you make a TV show, you've got to kind of find that happy point in the middle where... You've got just enough information and technicality for those guys. But realistically, it's, it's that kind of middle market. And what they want now is what they call co-watching. So, like, the bloke watches it with his missus or the missus watches it with the bloke. Well, and Top the kids Gear did that. Top Gear, was Top Gear really rammed that home, I think, yeah. is that the, the, the other half would be watching it yeah. with you because of the banter and you'd be watching with the cars and the banter. Exactly that. And, that. and that's always the dream in television, that you create a show that you can watch as a family. And mm. the kids, I mean, my kids, I've got two daughters, eight and ten, and they will sit down and watch Top Gear. My eight-year-old daughter, the Africa special for Top Gear, knows every line. Mm. She actually, we sit there and watch it together, <laughs> and she will literally go through the script, because they're so into it. And to them, it's not car television, it's just entertainment. Yeah. And that's very clever. But unfortunately, to make a successful show that gets big viewers, you've got to sit yourself somewhere in the middle yeah. and make it broadly entertaining have lots of car facts for the car guys, but also make it so that everyone in the family can take something out of it. And mm. I think, unfortunately, the real car people don't understand that. They just think, well, it's, it's not massively geeky. No, but that's, Therefore, it's a terrible programme. It's, it's exactly what you said. It's, that's perfect for YouTube. 
Yeah. Because YouTube is open to the world. Yeah. And there will be, you know, the 50 people in each country who want to know that information, which then makes it a big enough number yeah. that, you know, that person goes and makes more of that stuff. And, and that's it. And it's also because of the funding model on YouTube, those guys will hopefully get enough money through advertiser funding or maybe even Patreon or stuff like that. Yeah to fund those pages and it's brilliant that those guys are there creating that content because yeah. thank you know thank the lord it's there but you can't run a tv show with the kind of cost of running a tv show yeah. you know and the hundreds of thousands slash millions it costs to make discovery production and just make it for those guys because the advertisers won't advertise so for, on your show how many people were involved oh it's crazy well we have a relatively small arm of production but i know for salvage hunters the antique show there's 60 people on that place so that that's why yeah. we cannot get down to worrying about which is the correct screw to use in this wing, you know, on every single show. Yeah. Because it, it, it doesn't it it doesn't scale up, it doesn't no. translate into money. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would love to make a show like that. I would love to make a show that's just about nitty gritty, nerdy details mm. and go into stupid facts and figures and make stuff. But I say you would never put it on television, no. you'd have to make it as an online. Yeah. So there's a place for that, and I embrace anybody that does it, but unfortunately I don't think it'll ever be on mainstream television. No, I, I, I totally agree with you, um, but I don't think it needs to be. Yeah. It doesn't need to be. So you, you, there's going to be three shows out, and hopefully um, that will translate to Drew having enough time to do more, Yeah. and the production company going, yes, please, we want more. Yeah, well, so with, if we can maintain I think, the viewing figures we had for, for the first one, which were fairly phenomenal, and kind of exceeded everybody's expectation, they were almost where a normal Savage Hunters episode is. Well, which is cool. Yeah, which is kind of the thick end of half a million, which is mad for a brand new show <laughs> on Freeview. So if we, if we can maintain that, yeah, yeah, I think we'll be okay. But so thank you to everybody that watched it. Do appreciate it. So um, well, I won't ask. I won't ask for any spoilers then for the for the rest of the series. I can tell you I'll what the next wait. two cars are because they've been advertised. Okay, come cool, on. Well, the next two cars are a Porsche nine two eight S, nineteen seventy no nineteen eighty two. That one is, and a really nice nineteen sixty eight Mini kind of Cooper recreation. Oh, okay. Which is a bit of a mongrel because it was bits of 68 Mini, so 68 drive training, I think the 81 shell with a 78 engine. But it sounds terrible, but you know, actually it's quite a nice car at the end. <laughs> but real 60s Minis are just ridiculous now. Like a nice Cooper's 45, isn't it? You yeah. d- just show me older cars now that aren't ridiculous. I know. It, it, it is, I mean, before you get to the top end, I mean, if you if you say Porsche on it, then you yeah. seem to add two noughts on the end of the price. It doesn't matter what the what the condition is which just seems insane uh, nice cars that they are but it does yeah. it does seem insane and and if, well if you can throw some straw on it and a bit of dust yeah you can add another naught on whatever it's got <laughs> actually talk, of, of that come and see us we're doing the uh, the, the restoration show at the NEC in March mm-hmm. and we will have a barn find in inverted commas on our stand that I think will make people laugh oh, I, I remember um, a couple of years ago I went and they 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 did say this is a barn find in, in one of the big displays, and they they had actually just put a bale of straw on top of the bonnet. <laughs> it was just like, oh come on! <laughs> but this is a car that is genuinely being pulled out of a barn that has been there for many years and is covered in that authentic patina grime. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's my car. <laughs> it's come out of my barn, and I fully know it's there. So it's not a case of finding it. You have to take a picture of it in the barn to go, it's proof. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the certificate of ownership now. It's his, his. So I can, you know, <laughs> flaunt it as an authentic barn find, but yeah, I, I know it's there. It's not like an amazing discovery. It's just I haven't had time to do anything with it for the last five years. So we're, we're going to pull it out and kind of bring it to the NEC. And I won't tell you what it is. You have to look okay, on the well, website. I'll, 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 yeah. I will come and visit. Please do. Please do. Um, so we're, I'm here today at uh, Landspeed. 
which is your workshop. That's right. Garage, so, what do you call, what's the technical term? It's a garage, isn't it, really? I don't think okay. you need to think of a grander term than that, really. Okay. It's, just, it's a good old-fashioned garage. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> so the whole point, what's nice, again, so when we did um, Savage Hunters Classic Cars, what Drew and the production company really wanted, and I think the reason I got the gig, is they wanted a genuine garage and a genuine garage owner, mm-hmm. rather than kind of a constructed show where it was bought in. So our last show was a constructed show, so it was Adam and Dave and I in a rented garage in... Lancashire, doing what we generally do in real life, but obviously in an artificial construct. And they said for this show, it's got to be real. So they said, like, it has to be a real garage, has to be a real garage owner, has to be a friend of Drew's. So that kind of narrowed it down slightly. <laughs> so it's quite a short shopping list. <laughs> to be fair, it's the only reason they got the job. And so Landspeed exists, landspeed.net, if you want to have a look. Landspeed is a real garage where we do kind of the weird and the wonderful, kind of the old and the interesting, rare and retro, the, the kind of cars that you can't take to a normal garage, basically, because okay. they look at you gone out. So yeah. I don't know where to put the plug. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, today, looking out the window, we can see what we've got. We've got a Bentley Tabouar, we've got Drew's 205 GTI, STI, a 612 Scaglietti, a Rolls-Royce Ghost... Just yeah, and Mark One, I Suzu Trooper, you know, and then I think we've got a Renault Clio in for a Campbell, you know, so <laughs> keeping it real. <laughs> don't want to get above yourself. <laughs> yeah, we don't need it. That's the thing. We, we, we pitch our store very much in kind of that sort of everyday supercar territory. We've seen to a lot of kind of 10 year old, very expensive cars. So, say we've got the 612 in today and the Rolls Royce Ghost. So, cars that would have been, you know, perhaps caught in a million quid when they were new, and now with a very canny second owner, perhaps, mm. he thinks, you know, I want to go to a really nice place that can do the job properly and use genuine parts, but I don't want to spend three grand doing an all-service on my Ferrari. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, a growing number of people that are buying these cars, want to enjoy them and do the right things with them and look after them properly, but don't want to spend stupid money. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the trick. That's the trick. So you've, you've obviously got a, a great team here. Brilliant team, very uh, lucky. Of uh, as you said, very skilled people that you delegate to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got three guys full time in the workshop, and Big T who runs around making the tea and uh, kind of fetching and carrying. We've got four of us upstairs to do the PR and kind of bits of garage admin. So we've only got eight people in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you've got to grow slowly, haven't you? So this is kind of our fifteenth year of being a PR agency now, and only our first year of running this garage. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think every penny that we're making this year, we're just putting back into the garage. We're having new equipment. Nicer surroundings for the customers to come. I don't think you can invest too heavily if you've got a workshop. Maybe we want to have the best of everything, the best diagnostics, the best tire machine, mm. the best ramp. We've got a wonderful spray booth here as well. So again, we're having new full trace equipment in that, you know, new guns, new compressors, everything. So I think you know everything that you make, you put back in, and then you yeah. just you do a better job. I think. Yeah, no, because uh, you you uh, kindly showed me around before, and uh, there's some lovely cars out there. That I won't mention, but there are lovely cars out there. Uh, but it just what struck me again was it was a very relaxed atmosphere. People were busy and they were doing their job, but it was all done in a very relaxed, methodical, we are going about our job type way. When again, thanks to TV and stuff, sometimes you get the impression that people are oh, come on, we've got to go, it's all rush and pressure and pressure and pressure. And it seems that that's definitely not what you have out there. Is that been a conscious effort, or is that just... I think it happens subconsciously. It's lovely that you say that. It really is. But I think because on the PR side, because we're doing so much publishing and work with magazines, we're so used to handling deadlines, because publishing is just deadline, deadline, deadline. Yeah. It's been like that every day for the last however many years. I think you just get used to handling deadlines. So although most of the jobs in there have a deadline, like they want their car back for tea time, or it's got to be ready by the end of the week, or if it's a TV car, it has to be available for filming on that day. You just you know set out the parameters... 
and you work to them, really. And what's nice is we all kind of work the same way. Occasionally you get a curveball. The golf that was in episode one of the show was meant to be filmed. Two days before it filmed, engine killed itself, basically. The oil pump went, took the bottom end out. So then you've got two days to source a 1600 engine, which is rare. You know, rebuild it, new shells, machine, all that kind of stuff. So occasionally it gets a little bit more stressful. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's there, you know, because it's not like that every day. I think if you ran a business where you were on the edge every day, and it's a bit like, you know, we're talking about fake jeopardy in TV shows, aren't yeah. You know, that's why we won't do it in the show. Because I think if you see a garage business where the guys shout at each other all the time or everything's a rush or everything's a stress, a real business wouldn't run like that. Mm. And I think people see through that now. I think, you know, two characters that are always at each other, you wouldn't work together in real life. One of you would have left. Yeah. So generally speaking, in the working relationship, you want to get on 95% of the time and then a small niggle. Yeah. So you know, if, if television can reflect that, I think it's more realistic. Mm. So do you enjoy the filming? Love it. Absolutely. It's, it's the easiest job in the world, isn't it? I don't know. It really is. It really is. It's like this, isn't it? All we're doing now is probably having a conversation that we would have had anyway yeah. if we were sitting on a tea having a cup of tea, but we're just recording it. Yeah. And filming is almost exactly like that. So filming okay. is having a conversation. That's, that's definitely your approach then. It's just, oh, yeah. I'm just, I'm and I've always chat. been like that. Is, mm. So even if we're doing like a magazine show, just think, well, what would I say here normally anyway? What would be the conversation I'd have? And then they press record. You know, you've got to do it occasionally with some narrative. So when we do a scene for Salvage Hunters, they might say, well, actually, in this scene, you and Drew need to buy this car. And when you finish, if you could drive out to the right, because that's where the camera's going to be. And that's pretty much the entire direction for 10 minutes of filming, basically. Right. And then they just let you get on with it. And then I think it's really important to just say and do whatever you would have said and done had the camera not been there. Yeah. Because then it's, then it's real, isn't it? No, that's cool. That's cool. Right, um, before I take up your entire afternoon, I'm going to move on to the uh, quickfire questions. Okay. Right, now, I'm going to try and return to something I was meant to do from the start, which is I ask the question, you answer the question, I move on to the next question. Okay. However, I have failed in every single episode <laughs> because the answer, I've then gone, oh, ah, that's interesting, let's go further. So it has to be I'm a gonna... succinct self No, 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 you don't, you don't have to be. Okay. I just have to try and shut up for a change. <laughs> that's that's the, the idea. Let's see how it goes. It's the new year. Let's try. <laughs> okay. It's like, like truth or dare. Um, not quite that bad. Oh. Not quite that bad. But there, um, there's uh, what is it? Two, four, six, eight questions. So it, it won't take long. An exam, isn't it? Yes, the, there will be a test at the end. Um, the first question is: What currently excites you about the motoring world? Uh, everything. I think it's in a, cha- a state of change, isn't it? Really, because you've got all these new exciting electrical cars coming. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. I think we're becoming kind of more conscious as an industry of what our responsibilities are, so that's exciting. So we're trying to make cars more efficient, more fun. But, I mean, cars have never been better or cheaper than no. what they are, are they? That's, that's the other exciting thing. So that up GTI, let's talk about that. Awesome little car, 13.7 hmm. for a proper pocket rocket. You'd have paid that 10 years ago. So that's the, that's the thing. So, you know, cars are becoming better and better and cheaper and cheaper. The drivetrain options are exciting. And also what I love, you know, particularly close to home, the classic scene at the moment because I think there's so much awesome expansion and improvement over here kind of back in the middle there's, there's this huge desire just for the nostalgia for the old cars and to keep them on the road so you've got the best of both haven't you really yeah, yeah. that's what's exciting I think okay then what currently worries you about the motoring world not a great deal to be honest I think you know we've got to make sure that we are doing our bit because you know the world is in a bit of a bad state environmentally I think and that's it I think as long as that we are all collectively you know we're trying to do our bit even as a garage you know just like sw- uh, switching to LED lighting and all that kind of stuff and you know not driving V8s every day <laughs> just because we've got them <laughs> no, just every other day 
Yeah, all helps, isn't it? Yeah. But I think it'd be interesting to see with Brexit actually, because obviously, you know, whether that's going to change some of the supply chains. I'm a, a huge, huge lover, as, as hopefully you've seen in the show, British manufacturing, something I'm very passionate about. Mm. What I'm hoping is, you know, the reduced exchange rate and the softening of our currency not only makes our manufacturers more competitive abroad, but I'm hoping that some of the automotive businesses will start to look a little bit more internally and seeing if they can't source some of the stuff that they have been importing. From this fair isle of ours. Yeah, it sounds like they're going to need to. Yeah, and it's going to. Right. That's that's you know. I hope that's what happens. There is an uncertainty with Brexit, but I always think every uncertainty is an opportunity, and I think there is a huge opportunity for the industry there. Yep, yep. Uh, what has been your favourite car to drive, and why was that? That's a great question. Almost impossible to answer, isn't it? I think just for the silliness of it, and dynamically, it's a terrible car. <laughs> I have a Dodge Challenger SRT, uh, two thousand and ten. Uh, which I've had for about seven years, and I bought it when it was new, pretty much. And it's it's a rubbish car if you look at any kind of possible dynamic measurement, but it looks brilliant. It looks like a cartoon. We've put an exhaust on it. Miltech did a one-off exhaust. It sounds like a cartoon. We've sorted the suspension out. You know, it will spin in fourth gear. And every time you drive that car, it's just like, yes! It's ridiculous. It just makes the best noise you've ever heard. It will just burn out everywhere, and it goes sideways everywhere. And it just sounds like the soundtrack to all those things you used to watch as a kid, all those kind of car chase movies. It sounds like that when you drive it. It's that kind of V8, like a NASCAR noise. So it's a total event. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just I'm entertainment. Going for a pint of milk. This yeah. is going to be epic. It really is. So I love that car. I think the BRZ, for pure driving enjoyment, as in, you know, like a real driver's car, it's the BRZ, I think. The Super mm-hmm. BRZ, to me, is just the best for the money. There is no car finally. You can take it on the track day and spank 99% of the cars there. You can drive to your you can go to the shops, does everything that car. <laughs> okay, then what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? I sound terrible because I, I can find something nice about every car. You see, you're such a positive person. Yeah, like even that 99 one old lady from new 33,000 mile 1.4 Civic, which most people think is a dreadful car, I find huge enjoyment from driving that. There's something good about every car, isn't there? There may be several bad things about it. I don't, there's, there's no car I dislike, really. So I think there must be one. Is there one that you were really disappointed in? That you were expecting something and that it wasn't? I don't know. Well, I tend to go into a fairly open mind with these. Cars I've never okay. driven before. I, I tend to not read road reports of too many things. Okay. Apart from a few respected journalists. But, no, I just... I find that every car has one defining feature that makes it fun, even if it's a terrible car, I think. Well, that's refreshing to hear. And I... Don't think I could ever live up to those lofty heights of <laughs> positivity. Especially if anybody's listened to the show or has seen me on Twitter, then they wouldn't, they'll know that I'm definitely. But also, if you drive as <laughs> many rubbish old cars as I do, you know, with terrible gear changes and bits and pieces, but have many other endearing faults, even if you get into yeah. what most people would perceive to be a decidedly average car now, it's probably still better than a lot of the stuff I drive. At what point does a car move from having character to being bad? <laughs> Is it an age thing, do you think? It could be bolstered. I, what I love is with old cars is you know when they get their real foibles and mm. idiosyncrasies. To me, that then becomes the challenge as a driver. You've got to learn those and work around them. Like, you know, we've yeah, all had that absolutely. car where you can only open the door by standing on one leg, yep. turning it for two seconds, and then to start it, you've got to have the choke exactly at three quarters of an inch and two squirts of the accelerator, and then catch it. 0.5 of a second after that. No one else can drive this because they will never get it to exactly work that. right. <laughs> and to me, that's the challenge. And then you know it doesn't go into second for the first five minutes to the oil's warm, and then it will only do third to fourth a certain way. And that, to me, is the challenge. And then you bond with the car. Mm. And all those things which many people would perceive to be terrible faults with the car. It's just like, you know, it's like people, isn't it? 
no person is perfect. Everyone's imperfect in any relationship with a person. You just find the things you love about that person and the things you need to kind of work around, and that's how you get along, isn't it? Yeah. And I think cars are no different. Mm. No, that's very good. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I snuck in an extra question there. <laughs> you weren't looking, so I, I did it. I can't see. I can't see what's on the screen. <laughs> um, this could possibly be a very tough question for you. What car would you like to own next? Easy. I can't afford oh, it. Okay. Yeah, Ferrari F40. I've okay. always wanted that car. To me, it's just it's everything about homologation car. I love homologation cars. Most of them are massively out of reach. <laughs> so I had the 22B, so I have owned my homologation car, but you know, all the other stuff is just stratospheric now, isn't it, yeah. really? But, yeah, F40, to me, the proportion, the line, the kind of the sense of purpose when you sit in one, the fact it is just a very prettily clothed race car, that kind of hold on. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is your favourite road to drive on? Um, there's loads, isn't there, really? There's the State Pass is quite nice. I do like that. Not today. No, <laughs> not today. <laughs> not today. I can't remember that road in Italy, the one that's always on the telly. I have driven that once. What, the one not that the Stelvio in... Pass, but the other one. Oh. I'm terrible at remembering where they are. And I've done, you know, the Top Gear Road up in Wales? Yeah. I've driven that a few times, and that is a great road. The, the in... Evo Triangle and all yeah. that there. Well, I grew up near there, so... Did you? Well, you know uh, what they're called better than me. No, oh, I... Uh... Don't ask me that. I know I can I can <laughs> describe it to you, but I'm hopeless with road names. But yeah, no, I know a lot of roads. Also, to me, like any great country road. I mean, because you can be on a really great driving road, can't you? And the traffic conditions on that yeah. day can be terrible. But to me, any great empty country road when you're in a nice car that's got a little bit of power, just enough grip and plenty of fuel, that's a great road. Because what I tend to do, see, well, my favourite road, which is technically a road, is is the Nurburgring because you can't drive fast on the road anymore, can you? No. As we were saying earlier, so what I, I tend to save all my hooliganism for track days now, and my favourite track are all if it's in Britain it's Cadwell Park followed by Donington and then every year I go to the Nürburgring and what I love about that place is you never truly learn it so I've been eight times now I think and you know I know where all the the corners are I know roughly where the breaking points are and what gear I need to be in but then you go one day and it's raining or it's snowing or you know you sit with the local and the local say well that's the breaking point for dry that's the breaking point for wet that's January December's breaking point <laughs> you know summer apex winter apex and of course you've got all those corners jeez I can't remember this yeah. you, know, you want to be two inches further out when it's a bit wet and of course then the next corner's dry how on earth yeah. so you, you know where the corners go but you never learn the track unless you live there yeah. you're never going to learn the track it's Sabine yeah <laughs> but that's it so all the locals I mean every time I go to Nürburgring I try and sit with somebody who drives it all the time and even though you know I know the track in inverted commas, I don't know the track. Yeah. And you learn so much, and I, I love the, the continual challenge. Going back to the cars that where you have to learn them, mm. the Nurburgring's wonderful because it's just a constant, constant learning process. Yeah, because of course, what I've forgotten to do in this chat is talk about your racing. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm well, we, we can gloss over that. Bad. We can gloss over. <laughs> no, but you, but you enjoy it. I do love it. Yeah. Way back in the day, I think I won my class about four or five years ago, my little Golf GTI 16 valve. There's a fantastic crash footage video on YouTube. If you search Golf Crash Brands Hatch, my uh, 16 valve Golf met a spectacular end, all thankfully captured on camera about five, six years ago. <laughs> so you can reminisce. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Well, funny enough, all my sponsors said that's the best thing you've ever done. Because I think the video had about 280,000 views in a, about a week. Closing. Yeah, Close see all the sponsors logo. Yeah. And then my sponsors said, yeah, could you not do that every year? Because we've had loads more exposure well, after then, you crashed. Then we'll put the price up so I can afford a new car every yeah. year. <laughs> and the spinal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was very lucky, actually. I mean, I work with Cobra Seats, and Cobra Seats 
um, very kindly sought out my safety gear for me. And uh, I had I sat with Mark Dunsford, who's their MD, and he said, you know, you've got to sit properly and where your harness sits. And amazingly, the week before I had an accident, I had all my harnesses refitted because I had them all in the wrong place. Oh, right. And I had this enormous accident at about 100 miles an hour. Walked from the car, didn't even have seatbelt bruises because the, the harnesses were so tight and fitted so perfectly I couldn't move. All right, yeah. So, so all was, the energy... was nothing to bounce no, exactly. So all the energy was dissipated through the seat frames. If you can imagine those side-mount oh, frames, okay. literally looked like a, a flake, perfectly rippled all the way down. And I take it that has to yeah. be thrown away at that point. Everything gets thrown away. Because it's done the job of absorbing the energy and... Exactly. Oh, yeah. So the, the stitching on the harnesses, that stretches, the webbing stretches, you know, there's fractures, the microscopic fractures in the seat cell, the side frames, they kind of ripple and... That whole thing's like an energy absorption system. Mm. So it goes into all of that and stays away from you. And everything did its job so beautifully. Walks out of the car, you know, bought another car a couple of weeks later, and, and back I went again. But actually, it taught me a lot, you know, spend your money on safety gear, even if you're just doing a track day. Mm. Buy a cheap car, an expensive seat, an expensive harness, an expensive helmet, and then, you know, then improve the car. Yeah, okay. Okay. So do you still race now? I do. I haven't raced last year because we had so much on with the garage and filming the TV show. Unfortunately, I've dipped out a year. Uh, but this year, I will be back. At, at, at the back. Golf again? <laughs> golf again. Still, still golf. I'm going to try to see. I've got a lovely little Mark II 8 valve race car. Unfortunately, the, the class that I run in, the production GTI class, there's not many 8 valves anymore. So I think if I turn up, I will be the only one. So I will win. <laughs> so I drive a real hollow victory. I'll finish number 28 on the grid. <laughs> First in class. <laughs> so I come over with a trophy. Punching, punching yeah. So I come over with a trophy. My kids think I'm awesome. And then like, it's a bit of a hollow victory, isn't it? <laughs> so I need to find some more people to race against. But um, we're being very lucky. We're getting a few offers now. Because obviously we're, whatever comes below Z, list celebrities. <laughs> a few championships have kindly rang up and said, would you like to come and drive for us? So we might do a few guest drives. Because Drew's got a licence as well. All oh, right, cool. Yeah, so to give the insurance. Oh, yeah, he said that. He said that in because. Uh, yeah, you. I think it was when you were going to test the golf, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. And then he, you were telling him off in the alarm. Yeah. Stop it. We're well, scratching it. He does. Well, Drew just tries like an idiot. Everything that we buy, he's got one speed basically, and it's just flat. Whatever we buy, so whatever we're road testing, you know, however the cameras are mounted, he's just all so the time. So you're sitting there constantly going, and now I'm going to fix that. Well, that's the thing. And I'm going to take that to paint now, and then we're going to have to get this redone. Well, interestingly, so that Mini, which you'll see in the next episode, he's literally wheel spin starting and handbrake turning out of every junction that we were filming. And then we get it back to the workshop, that clutch sees done. And I don't <laughs> believe, you know, Ben that clutch worked perfectly for the five years it's been in or whatever. And then the day after he's been driving it like Paddy Hopkirk, it's, it's stuck itself to the friction plate. So yeah, thanks for that. So that's where you got the uh, you got the dynamic yeah. tension. But also in the to me, you know, he's just a boy racer, and to me, it's stock. It's like you're damaging the stock, Drew. <laughs> Stop damaging the stock. Buy a second one to do that with. Yeah, this is, this is. I've got to sell this, and also his money. Though obviously we've got sort of TV budgets, and you know they're not massively precious about to the penny what things cost to fix. And when you've grown up doing that and thinking, mm. well, we are. You know, when we're running a garage, you want to make sure everything's done to the best quality for the lowest price. Then, you know, if we do a clutch, it's never 300 good, isn't it? So it's all money. But that helps with the realism, the, the, the realistic nature of the show, though, is that, you know, it's not... Money's not a problem, don't worry about it. It's a, no, actually, this is... I'm doing this as though I was doing this. Yeah. This is important to me. Please don't do that. Well, it's true. And what's interesting about this show, actually, when we um, signed our contracts to do the show, Drew actually has to underwrite all these cars, so it's Drew's money. Oh, right. So normally with a TV show, you get a production budget, the cars are bought from that production budget, they get sold, and then the money has to go back to the production company. 
That's true, many. He's if they've seen a, him drive. Then is that what well, they're saying? Why <laughs> <laughs> well, can't really tell him off too much because you know it's his wallet on the line basically. <laughs> if it all goes wrong, but that's unusual. That, that's that's not normal in television mm. for the presenter, one of the presenters, to basically have to stump up if the car mm. loses money. So it's focusing us to do you know a good job, but try and keep something in it. Oh, cool. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, right. Sorry. Now, now I've uh, try and get back on track of being remotely sensible here. Um, what is the most pointless optional extra you've experienced? I think ventilated seats. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I, I think they're a waste of. They really are. They, I don't like heated seats. Really. Oh, well, I come from Sarbi. See, we kind of invented that. Well, I, I know that, but it's it's extra. Well, in a Saab, it doesn't matter that that amount of extra weight will not matter in a Saab, really. <laughs> well, especially alternator loading, as you could say, because if you put your heated seats on, it's quite a current draw. So that's obviously higher alternator loading, so less MPG if you're being really geeky. But yes. in a in a very cold climate, if you go to Sweden, which I did a lot when I worked for Saab, you, know, you get into your car and your heated seat comes on in two seconds, and of course you, your heat is going to be two, three minutes, isn't it? Then you think that's a genius invention. Mm. You can see why they were standard for a long time on Saabs. But ventilated seats, you've got the aircon on, you're going to be cold enough, aren't you? That was kind of pointless. I, yeah, Anything yeah. it was good for, if you perhaps trumped in the car, it was yes, quite good. That's all I'm thinking. Wafting it through. This was a bloke's invention. I think it, it was, because he just wafts it through <laughs> to the backseat passengers that little bit faster. Yeah. So, you know, whoever smelt it, dealt it quicker. Yes. Yeah. You smelly children. <laughs> yeah. Oh, kids, I can smell that's in the back. I'll just have to open all the windows in the back. Because yeah, I did that on the Griffin, it was. They had a ventilated seat. I remember sitting on it. I think, oh, that's quite cool, but what a pointless invention, really. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, penultimate question now. Who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? I don't know, especially you've gone down the, the telly road now. I think some very interesting people. Um, Johnny Smith, I would have thought, would be brilliant. Johnny yes, Smith is a very he, interesting. He is man. on the list of badgering. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd badger I, him. I have not got through to him yet, but. Yeah, I can text him and say you should do this. Johnny Smith's really interesting because obviously he's got all that experience as a writer as well mm. and a presenter. But also, he's got a fabulous car collection. Well, I really saw his uh, talking of YouTube. He yeah. just started his own channel yeah. in the last week or so, and he showed off his Dodge Charging. going off yeah. for an MOT, which was um, which was really interesting to see. It was good. And, yeah. Uh, if you like cars, go and subscribe. Car like pervert. whatever the technical terms are. Yo, guys. Yeah. That's not what we should say with YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> but do because it's it's good. And he said Bruv, he's going to be putting subscribe more... fam <laughs> yeah. and language like that. Yeah. <laughs> Because he said he's going to put more up on there. Yeah, and I look of course forward to he's, that. He's, um, he's similar to yourself that he's excited about the future as well. Yeah, well, he's, he's much further down the road than me. Yeah, he's brilliant with, on that. Um, That's so. a good show. That's another good show to watch, actually. Robert yeah. Llewellyn, I think, is brilliant. Yes. And you know, he really is embracing that. And it, it's going to happen, isn't it? We're going to have electric Oh, it's, it's going that way. Yeah. Just through legislation means there will be electrification or alternative power sources in cars that yeah. has to be because the the combustion engine can only do so much exactly that and also it's interesting isn't it because it is very old technology isn't it if you look mm. at the earliest Porsche design that was you know hubs motor hubs on an electric car over 100 years ago so we're just going back to kind of where we started really yeah. that was always the vision was for electric cars I mean you can get a I mean, if you look at it now it's, it's, it's almost crazy you can get like a Leaf with 200 plus mile range yeah. for okay they're, they're a bit expensive because you know, it is still quite expensive to make them, but it makes so much sense to so many people as either their first car or a second car yeah. in the household. You know, to two hundred plus miles. I mean, it's mad, really, Andrew, because where I live, I'm only seven miles away from the garage. So for the days that I'm working in the garage, I would be the perfect person because I'm pretty much on the days I'm here, I'm doing the same journey, seven miles in, seven miles out. 
you know, that's that should. You be could good. have a charger here. Yeah, you'd have a charger at home. Yeah, it, you would only be ever using one exactly once that. a week. Well, actually, funny enough, I do have a charger at home. Believe it or not, but she doesn't have a car to charge with it. I mean, when we had that love <laughs> conversion about three years ago, I came home one day and the electrician just put one in. Like, what are you doing? I've never asked for that. Is that how we get a grant? So I thought you'd like one. See all your cars you've got in your drive. I've just put one in. So I do actually have an electric charging socket. So if anyone wants to come and visit for tea, electric car, you can charge up. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, right. Uh, last question before I say thank you very much. Um, and that is, what are the best ways for people to uh, either get in touch or follow what you do? Uh, please follow me on Twitter, PaulCowland underscore, or look on Landspeed GB. That's the garage if you want to see what we're doing in the workshop. Or go onto the Facebook page, which is Landspeed Automotive. And yeah, that's what we're all about. Okay, well, I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. Thank you. So people can click through on those. And thank you so much for allowing me to invade oh, it's nice uh, to have this you. afternoon. Um, and uh, it's great to see what you're doing here. And it's been lovely to meet you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Should we do a high five because it's audible? Okay. Whoa! That's for the American listeners. <laughs> Thanks once again to Paul for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. And thank you to Mercedes Benz Vans for helping make Rearview on Tour happen. To see more about the Vito Tour I used, to visit the guests, click the link in the show notes. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag ReviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about the show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great guests who come on here. So until next time, that was Paul Cowland, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring. <laughs>